Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. I'm Cindy House and I am the host of this podcast. Thanks for checking out the show today. Before we get into our guest, Joby Riccio, got a couple things to talk to you about. Number one, have you signed up for our newsletter? If not, you really should do it. There's a link in the show notes or you can go to our website, basicfolk.com. You will get one email a month from us that lets you know what's happening with your favorite folk pod. It's the best way to stay in touch, basicfolk.com or link in the show notes. You can also follow us on social media. We're at basicfolkpod on all the mains, Facebook, Instagram, even TikTok. We're there. The other thing is that Basic Folk is a listener-supported podcast, and if you like You can go to our website and make a contribution, basicfolk.com. There is a link in the show notes. You can also open up Apple Podcasts, and you can become a subscriber there by searching for Basic Folk. You can send us $5 a month and get access to bonus episodes and really help us out. Thank you very much if you are a supporter of the podcast. High five. Okay. Let's talk about Joby Riccio. Joby has only begun to scratch the surface of what they have to offer on their debut album, Whiplash. The songwriting is centered around self-discovery and mourning past lives laid alongside super smart country and pop melodies. Our hero grew up an outdoor kid amongst the woods of Red Rocks Park's Amphitheater in Colorado, a strong bluegrass community encircled her playing from a very young age in a way that encouraged her to pursue music as a career. She spent time in Boston attending Berklee College of Music, nestled in the folk community centered around the historic venue Club Passim. Then March 2020 hit. Joby had to leave her newfound community and found herself back in her childhood bedroom. She was wrestling with all the complications of finding herself and her place in the world while letting go of her childhood and the sense of grounding that came with it. Eventually, they made their way to Asheville, North Carolina to work on Whiplash. In the studio, she took her time making the album and discovered that indeed she had a strong sense of vision for the music. The trust of her collaborators allowed her to trust in herself and create an album that is turning heads and making Joby Riccio one of the most exciting young songwriters of 2023. I love talking to them about their origin, time in Boston, and their continuing musical journey. I can't wait for you to hear her new album. We're going to take a listen to a clip of the title track, and then we'll get to our conversation with Joby Riccio on Basic Folk.
Thank you so much for being on Basic Folk. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay, so before we really dig into these questions, we went to f- the same Folk Alliance in 2020, New Orleans. Yes. And I have like thought about this a lot of times where I like accidentally like was going into a r- the same room as you and I accidentally like kind of like knocked you over a little bit I don't know if you remember that or not but I'm like of course I don't remember that okay (laughs) of course you do remember that (laughs) I have like a like I'll wake up in the middle of the night I'll be like oh no because I I feel like it was just like a nervous I'm about to go into a crowded room response no I I have literally no memory of it okay good because it was like a light hip check it was like uh, a folky hip check. I think that is your right, you know? Like, it's folk alliance, <laughs> it's late, you're like, everybody's just, we're just doing our best at folk alliance, let's be honest. It's a bit of an overwhelming yeah. experience. That was my first one, and I didn't even know what I was doing there, really. So, <laughs> You were getting hip checked it. by an elder millennial trying to get in <laughs> to go see the, the whirling dervishes. Nice. You got to do it for the whirling dervishes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's start. I wanted to talk about identity and and give you the opportunity to talk about your identity. Like, how do you identify pronouns, orientation, Mm -hmm. any like any of that stuff that that we want to address? Yeah, Um, I use she, they pronouns. Um, I identify as queer Uh, and Identity has been something that feels like it's been important and very complicated for me. And it feels like something that I have spoken about and made a part of my career. And now I'm kind of feeling like a little bit has become too much of a focus in my career, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. It's funny because I was listening to uh, the folk debate, your other... uh, (laughs) Uh, like the the podcast that you're I can't remember uh, the other it's an occasional name. it's an occasional crossover series yes. with why we write <laughs> yes that's okay I was like you'll know the person to plug and I'm so sorry to why we write but I just it's based and actually something that Lizzie No was saying about like you can there's this sort of not to really just go right into it but I just really resonated with something that she said which was like it's about like who is asking, you know, those questions of me or like, yeah, it can feel like a fine line between like, you can, you know, it's like kind of cool right now to be like, 
a queer artist or a black artist or an artist of color in the folk space. And it's Mm kind of like when you're with your community, that feels one way. And then or with people who are like truly great. (laughs) And then when you're with people who it's like they just seem like they need to check that, you know, they need to check that box. It's so obvious and it's so painful and it feels like a betrayal of yourself. And she put it a lot more eloquently than all that. But like, that's the way, like, in the, if we're like really going down the discussion of identity, like, it's important to me that I, you know, that I am open with my identity. But I also feel like there have been times where it's been so hyper focused on in a way that Mm -hmm. it's like, did you even listen to any of my songs? Mm. Or did you, you know what I mean? Like, not, (laughs) I didn't. Just kidding. I did. <laughs> I didn't. So, nope. no, I know. Not me. <laughs> but anyways, I know that was like maybe less of a, uh, oh, like, let's get into this topic question. But I just have this. I was just thinking of that because I listened to that two nights ago and was like, oh, awesome. Maybe I give a shout out to the other podcast, too. <laughs> cool. Or the special, rather. I really enjoyed that answer. You know, like you just kind of have to. Like doing these interviews, sometimes I feel like I'm going to ask, I think that the interview is going to go one way or like a question is going to go one way and it goes a complete opposite way. And like, just got to enjoy the ride. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You are from Morrison, Colorado, which is outside of Denver, the same place as Red Rocks Parks and Amphitheater. Mm -hmm. You are an outdoor kid. (laughs) Um, How do you think your early experience in nature has impacted the person you became? I think that it's something that I really value and need and is a processing tool for me being out in nature. It's I mean, it's almost equivalent to songwriting and writing in my journal or whatever. Like it's it's honestly super hard here in Nashville because I don't feel like I can get that in the way that I was I mean I used to be able to walk to a hiking trail five minutes from my house like I was absolutely supremely spoiled (laughs) with outdoor access as a kid and like it it you don't know any better you know like to to know that like there is going to come a time where you're going to live somewhere where like the nearest mountains are two and a half hours away Mm. like that is you know that is rough um so it's something I have to really intentionally build into my life now and that's a really hard thing to do as a musician in my position as like a musician in my position um you know what Mm. I mean like an emerging artist or whatever because you have to kind of just go when they say go um yeah in a lot of circumstances I mean I am a person with my own autonomy, but at the same time, I am like really trying to build my career. So, um, but I'm proud of myself because I'm going on a hiking trip uh, next week. So that'll be a nice way to kind of process some stuff that has been, you know, all the stuff that's been happening the last few months Um, because it's been a lot (laughs) and I haven't, and I have like been gone and touring and doing stuff. So I think that nature heavily informs me as a person, like Mm -hmm. musically, I feel like it, it shows up in my lyrics, um, images from home, like, you know, talking about coyotes and cactus and 
et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I feel like it's so intrinsic to who I am as a person. So nature ruined you. <laughs> For real. The nature ruined me. Colorado <laughs> ruined me. <laughs> there has always been this strong draw to music for you, country radio, your parents and sister's collection of music, and also making music on your own. So can you set the scene for what music looked like in your house? And like, when did you get a grasp on your own taste in music? Yeah, uh, my parents definitely, we had like a home stereo and a big collection of CDs. And I spent a lot of time like just sort of putzing around my house as a little kid, like opening cabinets and looking at things and opening the encyclopedia and reading it. Like, I don't know if anyone else, like this is like, feels like a really intrinsic part of my childhood was just like <laughs> looking at things. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and so like the CD collection in the like big wicker basket was definitely like a huge one for me. Like they felt like little gifts. Like I could open up the CD and, then there was this extra thing I could pull out and there were liner notes and lyrics and I could read along. And like that was really big for me because I was always really interested in lyrics. Uh, and my dad's a huge Bruce Springsteen fan and we love the boss and sometimes we can't understand the boss. So like have and like his lyrics are <laughs> wonderful, too. So I like really feel like that was pretty formative to me, just like looking through my parents' CDs and my sister's CDs as well. My oldest sister had like a uh, like a clear, hot pink, very early 2000s lockbox thing uh, that she kept her CDs in. And yeah, I remember like getting going into her room and stealing CDs out of her room very vividly. Like The Killers, mm. Coldplay, A Rush of Blood to the Head was a big one for me. Uh, Show mm. Crow, Tuesday Night Music Club. Those were all from my yellow card, Ocean Avenue. Like those were the <laughs> CDs for my sisters. And then like Emmy Lou Harris, Bruce Springsteen, Linda Ronstadt, the Eagles, uh, James Taylor, all those people, kind of those mm -hmm. classic songwriter folks uh, from my parents from that from that 60s, 70s era. There is a strong bluegrass community uh, where you're from. Um, you found it at an early age from playing mandolin when you were like eight or nine years old. And since then, you've sought out musical community. So what did you learn from the first musical community, your first musical community that informs the type of musician you want to be and the type of community you want to be in? I the bluegrass community was a big part of feeling supported for me in music. I really like I was always a kid who sang and was like the girl with a good voice in like my elementary school class or whatever. But like I didn't see myself as a musician until I really started like playing mandolin. And I had a teacher and he was super supportive and was like, yeah, you know, like you really great at instruments too like it's not just like you're some sort of kid who can sing well <laughs> like I feel like the bluegrass community in my hometown really like took me seriously as even though I was like a you know a little kid running around at rocky grass and by a little kid I mean 16 like I didn't go until I was a teenager uh when I went to my first bluegrass festival but like you know, I would be able to go and, and sit and jam with adults and 
you know, be taken seriously and not just be like, oh, yeah, that's great. Like, you can sit in the circle for one song and then you're and like professional musicians and musicians I really looked up to um, who, you know, offering their support to me was immeasurable to my own Mm. self-confidence at that age. I mean, I was you you're so insecure at like 15, 16. And the first year I ever went um, to Rocky Grass, which was like the Colorado Bluegrass Festival that I sort of became like my home festival. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even go out and play with anyone. I just sat in my camper with my mom because I was so scared and so nervous and like having trouble with confidence. And then the next year I was out like playing every night till like two, 3 a.m. Mm. Um, That's a huge shift. Yeah. So I feel like community and music is I mean no musician is an island like we're nothing without the musicians who came before us and those who've supported us I mean I sometimes look back on that time and wonder if I hadn't gotten that like nod in that jam from that like older kid who was like really good who I thought was awesome Mm. or like that artist who I worshipped who told me I had a beautiful voice or like you know, I shared one of my songs with them and they were encouraging of me writing. Like, I don't know if I if I would have taken it this far, which is really like, yeah. And then I I got to be in a really beautiful community space working at Club Passim in college, too. And I feel like that also further helped bolster my confidence, especially playing solo because as you know, as also somebody who worked there um, <laughs> in a much different capacity, but uh, and is familiar with the club, it's very much like a solo listening room, singer songwriter space. And like I play solo basically now on tour always because I can't afford to bring out a band right now. So I feel like mm-hmm. I really garnered some valuable skills watching other people like Marcarelli and Laurie McKenna play solo at Passim and also having to do that myself and like learning how to speak about the songs I had written and like just not be painfully awkward. Uh, mm-hmm. But in doing that in the loving embrace of that room, which is like you kind of it feels like you almost can't do anything wrong because people are so totally there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, you can always say something wrong, but like, (laughs) but it definitely feels like it was a really formative space for me to learn how to like be a solo performer and grow and, and be a, like a real quote unquote, real songwriter, you know, like not just a teenager in my room writing Mm -hmm. songs. I was thinking about this question, so I'm like, oh, I forgot like um, how old I was while I was writing this question at first, but then I remembered. So you've talked about Sheryl Crow and the Chicks as having like a huge impact on you. You picked up the mandolin after you first heard Nickel Creek, which is, I'm guessing, like around like early 2000s-ish. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that must have been really cool for Joby. Because, you know, you saw someone that was like, quote unquote, your own age playing these acoustic instruments. And then I was like, wait a second. 
Nickel Creek is my age, and <laughs> they're probably they're probably like fifteen or twenty years older than you. So, yeah. <laughs> but but still thinking about that, like the other people that you might have been listening to were, you know, several decades older than you. Like the chicks and Cheryl Crow are like maybe like a Gen X, and then these elder millennials playing these acoustic instruments, I don't know if, if that's like resonating with you or not, but like, can you talk more about the influence Chris Thiele, Sarah and Sean Watkins had on you? So I first heard Nickel Creek on the radio, um, on KBCO, which is, you know, like the AAA Hell yeah. station. That's a huge in, station. That's where AAA was born. Where AAA was born famously. Yes. Yes. Um, and that was my local radio station that I listened to as a kid. And they would play Smoothie Song by Nickel Creek. And this was around the same time that I heard the Home album by The Chicks. And, like, I was listening to Top 40 Country Music and also hearing Mandolin here and there. And, like, it's so strange because I, I don't play the Mandolin anymore. Like, it's just something I'm not interested in now. So it feels like... I'm really like, like, it makes me almost kind of sad to think of how, you know, like this was such a big part of my life. And then I, I mean, I really pivoted and it's like, you'll never say never, but I mean, I, yeah, I, I started playing mandolin actually when I was 15, I wanted to play mandolin when I was about eight or nine years old, because that was when I really, that was when like, we got, why should the fire die on CD as a family. And that's when I started opening up the CD and reading the booklet and listening to like these songs that were like, that album is so cool because it's like, there's a little bit, oh man, I hope that this never, I mean, maybe they know, but I feel like it almost has sort of like a pop punk thing to some of the songs, like somebody more like you did it. Like that's very, that was so of the time. And I, loved it. Like I couldn't get enough of that. And then also just being like introduced to this new palette of instruments that I really hadn't heard played in this way. Like I was familiar with bluegrass to some extent, um, but it was, it felt like bluegrass for me and my like angsty little 12 year old self. And like, you know, everybody's angsty selves at any age, like, um, yeah, or, like, just, like, I don't know. Like, there was something so, like, that, that just, like, struck such a chord in me um, because I listened to a lot of, I mean, like, it was, I'm I'm thinking back to, like, 2007, 2008 right now. Like, it was very, people, I mean, Dashboard Confessional was everywhere, people. Like, I mean, not to say that they're, like, but I don't know. They kind of dabbled with, like, playing, you know, songs in the rock sphere like with all the strokes stuff and then the The, indie rock the first song i heard by them was that pavement cover right yeah and pavement's super like emo like (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. right spit on a stranger right yeah that's it that's like i love i loved that first album too so i mean they all they were all like older than me but I didn't really know that either because like they're pretty young on the CD case Mm -hmm. and like I was like oh they're probably like my older sister's age who is like now 28 and like 
Uh-huh. They're not that, you know, they're not like that close in age to me. Like, but there I did. So what going back to what you're saying, like I did feel like a kindredness that a lot of I feel like roots artists talk about, like hearing them and the checks of being like, oh, this is like a cool. This is cool. Like this is like of the moment. They're incorporating sounds that we like from other genres, which is really yeah. what I think I'm trying to get at with the whole like pop punk thing, though. I know that can be kind yes. of a dirty word like pop country, but I don't think it should be. I don't think any <laughs> genre word should be. Um, but like, yeah, I feel like I still had that, even though they were kind of like the cool, like cool older cousins or something. Yeah. Um, and I definitely had like a three month period where I was like, I'm in love with Chris Thiele. I'm going to marry him. And that was a little, you know, I was short-lived, but it was, you know, it was strong. He really, his, like, high, um, angelic voice really spoke to my prepubescent soul. Oh. So. <laughs> That's so sweet. You're like, I don't know Thank what you to for sharing that about No, that. it turns out it was Sarah Watkins the whole time. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Your bluegrass wife. Mm-hmm. You took some lessons growing up, but it seems like arts and music were not things that were prioritized or taught in the schools that you attended. So what did your learning process look like and how do you think that has affected your musicality? Yeah, I went to a great elementary school, it was a public school, Red Rocks Elementary, and I feel that just being creative was really actively encouraged. Uh, we had a music program and we had, it wasn't some like world-class, you know, thing. I feel like it was perfect for what elementary schoolers need, which is just like light encouragement and like to be, you know, put a guitar in their hands. Like they don't, you know, I think sometimes creativity and, and their children and their ego can get really complicated and it can feel like my kid has to practice the violin for 18 hours a day. And it's like, I think just being playful about creativity as a young kid is really important. And I feel like Mm. I was really able to do that. Um, I had a really wonderful uh, art teacher in elementary school, Miss Wolf, shout out. Um, And I was one of those kids who would go eat lunch in the art room. Um, (laughs) Not surprising. And, (laughs) And like draw and she'd put on like Totoro or whatever, like some sort of interesting artistic movie I'd never, you know, like I had no exposure to, like, and I I just thought she was so cool. And like, I feel like that was sort of the gateway to being like, you can be a person with interests and like live this beautiful, creative life. Like, even if it wasn't directly about music, like just having that like fire for creativity and like passion for life, I feel like was such an important thing for me as a young kid and like what kept me going back into the CD collection and drawing when I got home from school and just like keeping that channel open Mm. and like not in a way that felt like I have to do this because you know mom said I have to do this many scales on the piano or whatever like or I have to draw every day or, you know, like just because I was a kid and I was experimenting with things that I liked. Um, and then it got harder the older I got because I I had sort of a weird experience where like I went to a public middle school 
and didn't do like orchestra or band uh, for one year because I like I did like orchestra, quote unquote, in elementary school for one year. And like it just wasn't really like I don't know, like the program wasn't great, really. What were you playing? I was playing violin. Uh, and I can't play violin. Like, <laughs> I can't play fiddle. Uh, it didn't stick for me. So then I didn't end up doing it in seventh grade when I went to middle school. And then in eighth grade, I ended up going to like an arts magnet school for theater, which was another like little interest that I had. And really, it was like mm. I was interested in performing. Um I don't think I was ever that interested in theater, actually. Like, I think I just liked to perform and be on stage and sing and like try to be funny. <laughs> like that was sort of, so that program ended up being way too intense. And then I ended up going to Catholic school uh, and transferring half Not intense at all. Not intense at all. Yeah. Just like something to be like a little bit more chill. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, my sisters went to Catholic school and I was having a hard time at this art school. So my parents were like, why don't you just go? to the Catholic school. Um, I didn't really want to go, but it was sort of like, you kind of have to. Uh, and then they had no arts program. Like there was no music. There was a very, very struggling, like theater and choir program, uh, that basically subsisted of like, yeah, the same 10, 10 kids and one faculty trying to run the entire thing with no funding. Um, and that, so that was a little hard, but that was when I was finding like Rocky Grass and taking mandolin and like finding musical mentors and community outside of like an academic school space. So I never learned like theory or really anything. And then I ended up going to Berkeley, uh, for music school and learning, having to play like a massive game of catch up. So that's Mm. sort of... (laughs) <laughs> the long story of like how I did and didn't receive <laughs> an arts and musical education as a young kid <laughs> and how it was kind of okay and like really good in some ways. And then also the older I got and the more challenged I need to be and the less I could find places where I could be challenged. Then it ended up being really hard my first semester of college, but I figured mm-hmm. it out. <laughs> All right, let's go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, and talk about (laughs) feminism. Um, It seems like it existed for you early on. Like, you've talked about the opinionated and outspoken women in your house. Mm -hmm. Um, So this was indeed a strange time for feminism. (laughs) Let's call it third wave. Um, But what influence did your early exposure have on your outlook I feel like I, it wasn't so obvious what it was to me, like, uh, that it was, you know, like this thing called feminism perhaps, or something that could be related to that. Like I, my family was pretty like traditional suburban family. Uh, and I feel like my two oldest sisters, older sisters, especially my oldest sister, really like, she was kind of just, she was very, like, and still is very opinionated and like interested in politics and like 
kind of knew where she stood on things like and interested in music and art and things that I thought were cool and like wasn't into what everybody else was into in our like relatively sheltered suburban bubble uh and then was into some things that other people were too but like I feel like she was always really interested in like politics and social sciences and she now works as in a nonprofit uh for a nonprofit uh basically as a community organizer um cool. in in uh what they call the valley in southwestern Colorado uh and it totally kills at that job but like has always been interested in being outspoken and like researching and you know being interested in like environmental ad- advocacy and um climate justice and all these things that I ended up also you know like taking an interest in because I thought they were they were cool and like important and necessary um and then like my middle sister also was very like she just didn't take any shit like I, I don't know if I can say it like I don't know if I can say curse words but I it's yeah. hard because I feel like I, I have been kind of censoring the curse words here but basically she didn't and doesn't take any shit and like always stood up for herself always stood up for me like there were times where I really needed that voice and I feel like she modeled that for me. And so I feel like really my sisters are who I think of when I think of that like early formative influence. And then also like, you know, the chicks, Natalie Maines being like, I don't care. I'm going to talk about this. This is something that I care about. This is, here's my full idea on this really hard situation and I believe it in my heart and this was like kind of a kind of a thing in the 90s you know like Sinead O'Connor and um all these other art Fiona Apple like these other great artists who were just like you know what this is I'm like going completely against the grain and I know it's going to be like really hard because this isn't like acceptable to do yet uh and yeah, it wasn't people didn't have like phones to go tweet their outspoken original opinions on 24/7. So yeah. like it was a big deal. So like also seeing that I was like these people are like their own people and like that really made an impact on me. Like I feel like I just always wanted to be who I was and there were times where I felt like I couldn't do that, like where I grew mm-hmm. up and how I grew up. Mm-hmm. And I always knew that, like, end game for me is, like, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go chase this dream that I've always had, which is being a musician. And I'm mm-hmm. doing it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is pretty yeah. crazy. Okay, so this question, um, just just based on what we were talking about with identity, you might want to skip this question, and it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you know, the time where you were growing up, like we said, was a weird time for feminism. <laughs> There were, like, many unrealistic standards for women. I mean, there still are, but, like, even more so, um, where women were expected to act and look certain ways. And even though we have evolved, that still rings true today. So even though there was a strong female presence in your life, how did it live in parallel with this other, like, societal shit? Well, I was raised Catholic. (laughs) So that kind of maybe answers a lot of questions. <laughs> oh, God. So you're still recovering, still working a on it. A little bit, yeah. I mean, we yeah. were kind of in and out 
of the Catholic Church. I they they um, love that. They love when people do that. <laughs> yeah, they're they're into it. <laughs> they're all about it. It's so funny though because like so many people grow up that way. Like the C and E Catholic thing with Christmas and Easter is like kind of a joke. We weren't we like when I was a little kid. Like we went to mass on Sundays relatively with regularity when I was like a small kid. And then it's just like everyone starts playing soccer and everyone starts doing all their (laughs) other little things that they do as little kids. And we, you know, we were spending a lot of time going hiking and skiing and doing wonderful things on the weekend that I was like, this is way better than church. Um, and had a lot more energy. Or this for. feels like what church is supposed to this feel like. This feels like church to me. No, for real. That's so so. That's spot on. Um, so yeah, it became like something that was still kind of culturally important to my family, especially my dad, because his parents are um, were both Irish and Italian Catholic uh, immigrants. So they. Like this was a huge, this is the Riccio side of the family. Like it's very, it's still a part of, you know, our family culture. Um, even though like some of us are no longer Catholic, (laughs) like it's still, it's so interesting, like that you can, in certain religions, you can, it's kind of accepted to be like, you can be like culturally Jewish and that's like not as Maybe I have this misconstrued, but it feels like that's more common. Like nobody's ever like, I'm just culturally Catholic. Like it's kind of like you're yeah. in or you're out. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> like the whole religion is very like dogmatic in like you believe this or you're out. <laughs> um, but that's kind of how I feel like my family, how we ultimately ended up being. Uh, and and I kind of like I was dealing with my own like experience, like just knowing from a young age that like I wasn't straight and that like I just wasn't, yeah, I just like, I I felt like I wasn't quote unquote normal because that was Mm -hmm. what was taught Mm -hmm. to me as normal, which was to be straight. And like, I just knew that I wasn't. And (laughs) I, I, you know, like internalized a lot of negative stuff, uh, not just from church, though, just like the other people I grew up around were, you know, hearing things from their parents who were probably conservative Christians and like, mm-hmm. you know, using gay as a negative thing, like, in a, you know, yeah. as a little kid. And it's like, you don't know what you're saying. And right. yeah, and just the, the, the hush hush around the idea that gay queer people, like anybody who wasn't straight existed in my life was very real. Um, and I think that was the hardest thing and the thing that felt most at odds with who I, yeah, who I knew myself to be. And like, yeah, I'm like trying to think if there was any, I tend to forget certain parts of questions and then only answer like half the question. So sorry oh, if no, I just did no, that. This, this is good to go into our next question, like about yeah. the evolution of your acceptance of self. What has that mm-hmm. looked like and what has opened up for you because of that acceptance? Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like my acceptance of self is at its best that it's ever been and it can still be better. Um, and I feel like I really... I really, I never like fully, there were certain parts of me that I, I like, I really enjoyed being different. <laughs> like, 
ultimately I felt it was a strength even when I didn't you know I wasn't fully able to believe that every single day of like my childhood and adolescence and and definitely you know like teenagerhood like I I did you know I did think of myself as like an individual or whatever like I definitely was that kid who I feel like was like no one gets me sometimes um (laughs) And sometimes I still have that little teenager voice that's like, no one gets me. Uh, And it's probably true. Yeah. No, it's just (laughs) it's just true. No, (laughs) I kind of wonder if it's like that comes from a place of like, I don't get me right now. You know, Mm. like when I'm when now I'm older, it kind of feels like those days where I feel like misunderstood or or like. It's just because I have a block within myself. Like, I feel like the older I get, the more I'm kind of realizing that, like, so many of the things that I, like, project onto other people are just things about me hmm. and and stories about myself and my life that I've lived in for years and have spent a lot of really great time in therapy undoing, <laughs> hmm. especially these last, you know, five or so years. Mm-hmm. Um And I think I'm still, you know, like the days when I just have hard mental health days, those are the hardest days to accept myself. And Hmm. that's real. Those are really, you know, those are really the days when I need it the most and that I'm trying to like cultivate that in myself so that when those days happen, I have more to give back to myself. Okay, um, in your songwriting, you include very specific, vulnerable, honest details in your songs. And you said, I've learned to push myself to be vulnerable and honest, even when it's scary, because it's the real key to real connection and is where the true beauty in life lies, which right on. Hell yeah. (laughs) Okay, here are the questions. When did you learn that about yourself and then how did you feel this style of songwriting change you I think that I've always liked vulnerability from a young age and sensitivity I was definitely called a sensitive child my entire upbringing which wasn't always a good thing for me to hear I don't think Mm. Uh, because sometimes it felt kind of negative Uh, but Mm. I have always been attracted to vulnerability in art. I mean, I I think that my favorite artists, I feel, I mean, maybe this is bad, but I really do feel like I know them. Like, I really have this kind of insane parasocial relationship with the artists I think that are, you know, who have been the most inspiring to me. And I, sometimes I feel like that's okay. Like, I don't have any big aspirations that I'm going to meet Joni Mitchell someday. And I'm honestly really fine with that because (laughs) I think it's like what her art has meant to me and what it has done for me is maybe more important. Uh, and the, the depth of vulnerability and the specificity of like her writing has always touched me. And it feels like has made me feel less alone and it I, it makes me feel like a kindred spiritness with 
that person. And I feel this way about, you know, artists and other mediums too, like Georgia O'Keeffe or Joan Didion. Like I really have always felt this like very, and like that has carried me through some horrible, horrible times of isolation. Like Mm. feeling like, you know, maybe I have literally nothing in common with these women. (laughs) Like I probably have less in common with them than I maybe have idealized. And that's okay. Cause I think that that like beautiful sacred space of connection through the vulnerability that I've felt in their art is like the thing that has allowed me to create and write songs and kept me inspired. So like why try to overanalyze or taint that, I guess. Um, Mm. And I really, this is also something that like from therapy, (laughs) another shout out, I have come to incorporate into my life, which is just being bold and honest and vulnerable in my communication with the people I love in my life. And Mm -hmm. that is the team that I am on now. And once you kind of go on that team, you kind of can't go back. (laughs) Um, Right, right. After, you know, the, the, the houses that we all grow up in, which are like, don't complain, don't explain, don't tell anyone how you feel. It's probably going to be bad. Um, which I feel like is a very classically American cultural, you know, thing that we grow up Catholic. Yes, absolutely. Like just go along with it. Everyone's okay. There's always somebody who's like the peacemaker and somebody who is, you know, causing the problems. Like these tropes exist for a reason and Mm -hmm. we internalize them and then we grow up and become adults who don't talk. And we don't tell people how we feel. And I Mm. think music and art is a space where people have always been able to say how they feel and be truly vulnerable and like experience vulnerability. And like, that's why I feel like it's so beautiful when people go see live music and cry because they're allowing that person's vulnerability to reach into their, you know, cavern of vulnerability or like, you know, locked box inside of themselves and just untighten it a little bit and just like let some of that out Mm -hmm. I'm getting a little bit like woo woo esoteric therapy girl right now but I really really believe this and it's changed the way that I live my life and I think that yeah sometimes it's like I think about there will probably come a time where I write more songs that are not, you know, that are narrative based, that are, you know, maybe more like auto fiction, um, where it's like semi autobiographical and semi fiction. And some of my songs are that way. Cool. And some, yeah, sometime where I won't want to, you know, do like, yeah, I just want to be inspired and write what I want to write. And I feel pretty moved to write as, you know, the people I am inspired by do, which is kind of in this lane. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Um, so you mentioned you went to Boston, you studied at songwriting at Berkeley, you fell into the folk crowd around uh, that centers around Club Passim and Harvard Square. The pandemic hits in March 2020. You leave Boston, you move back home. There's kind of like a mind fuck of moving back into your childhood house. And there's lots to talk about there. But the thing that I want to talk about is like leaving 
your musical community and being cut off from community and collaboration at such a formative young age. I was talking to Sadie Gustafsson Zook about this, and I think it was like too early in the pandemic that we had this conversation because um, I am not a musician, but I was deeply, deeply involved with the Club Passim world when I was like from my late teens into 20 being 25 years old and and still and still am involved but like I just like cannot imagine being you know 22 years old and then all of a sudden just having all of that cut off um Mm -hmm. of like going to shows hanging out being friends with people making connections watching different musicians collaborate together it seems like a huge loss um for your songwriting generation, like how do you think that loss that came with the pandemic continues to impact you and the people of your musical generation? Oh man, you ask the best and hardest questions, Cindy. (laughs) (laughs) I have thought this many times listening to your podcast and yeah, this one is, wow. I, I feel, I mean, I struggled with this and I, yeah, and I still am struggling with it because in some ways I feel like I was, and it's so easy to romanticize the past, but in some ways I feel like I was at my most creatively generative state right pre-pandemic. 2019 was like an insanely prolific year for me. And honestly, I haven't written as much since. Mm. And I wonder if it, if I will get back to that place, I'm, I'm going to say that I will and and hold that belief. But I was yeah. part of, you know, like, yeah, because like, why say that it'll never happen again? Like, that seems like just a waste of my time. <laughs> but mm. also, like, I was in such a rich community, like such fertile ground, like my literal job was to go serve at a venue where I would see at least, you know, one show a week that would inspire me to go write something. That is insane. Mm. And that is like not. And I was also studying and being pushed and mentored and encouraged and meeting other people my age who were writing songs and interested in the same things that I was. And like we were collaborating together and yeah, and working on music like it was an insanely um, inspirational time for me. And I think that's like really actually helpful to acknowledge because then I tend to be myself up over how little I write and how low quote unquote my output is. Hmm. But I think that I'm, I think I'm still struggling with it because I ended up moving back to Colorado, as you said, in with my mom. And it was just I felt like a teenager again. Like, I felt like, mom, get out of my room trying to write a song. Like, it was very, like, that kind of vibe. And, like, I did write things, um, still kind of writing that generative space into the early days of the pandemic. And then it's just really, it's slowed a bit. And then, you know, like, in my move to Nashville, like, I feel that inspiration, but I still struggle with, like, making things. (laughs) 
mm. post pandemic like I do. Yeah. And I Yeah, it's almost like uh I mean there are other passim types in your general vicinity in Nashville. It's almost like you have to like create a little weekly club or something to try to totally get the vibe together again or like get Dinty Child to get you up on yeah. Lake Winnipesaukee and do a songwriting retreat. <laughs> right? Oh god, I know. I mean that would be amazing. I did yeah, I did like a I got to do a solo songwriting retreat. And part of me is like I was supposed to go on a on a songwriting retreat that I ended up not being able to go on with uh Liv Green and Rachel Sumner and Brittany Ann Tranbaugh. And I was super mm-hmm. sad because I think I needed a little bit of the like uh you know community and and Carsey Blanton too like the community oh, yeah. like you got this girl like let's give each other <laughs> exercises and stuff and then like because I went on this solo retreat that I I mean I was so busy when I went on the retreat like a month and a half ago that I honestly just needed to kind of chill so that's kind of what I did and I like edited some ideas I had but I didn't really like write a new song um mm. and yeah, I think it's so hard to create anything consistent in Nashville because everyone leaves all the time, mm. except mm-hmm. for um, January and February. <laughs> and like, right. I, I don't know, people still tour then, you know, like people, people, it's such a transient place that yeah. sometimes it can be unmotivating for me oh, personally to create yeah. community and to seek out community because I am always leaving or, you know, when I'm staying, then other people are leaving. Like, it's it's a little bit of a ships in the night affair. I mean, it makes it extra special when people do get together. And I think I need I've been thinking about this a lot recently as I'm, you know, yeah. returning home for the month, basically, um, after being gone <laughs> for basically the last six months. <laughs> like yeah. how how starved I am for community for even just a song share. <laughs> mm. I got invited to one last weekend and I was out of town and I like literally cried. <laughs> I was so oh. sad. I was so upset because I was just like, oh, I really need this. I have nothing to share, but I need to just go listen. Like I just need. Yeah. It's just, it's so important to be around people. And yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't touring either when I lived in Boston. Like I would go play in Vermont or like New Hampshire occasionally, but that's not really the same thing as like, all right, one day we're driving up to New York City in one day and then we're touring down all the way, you know, like and giving yeah. weeks of your life to tour. Yeah. So I think that it was just an interesting time that I want to like value and honor and take certain elements of. Mm -hmm. Um, and better incorporate those into my life now because I think I'm kind of starved for it. Um, But also understanding that, like, it can't look exactly that way. Totally. Um, And post-pandemic, everything feels different. Like, it just does. (laughs) And it's hard to put your finger on it. (laughs) It That resonates with me so hard because I left uh, Boston when I was 25 and I moved to Pittsburgh and I'm still, like, Mm. trying to get... You know, I I had really great community here in Pittsburgh for a long time, but then, you know, music is like people's like hobby, you know, and then they yeah. get married and they have kids or they move to different cities and 
I'm just like dying to get back to New England. Mm, I uh, miss still. New England too. <laughs> I go tour yeah. there all the time because <laughs> because <laughs> I like want to see people. I mean, not even necessarily yeah. like. And it's so funny too because it's like even just to see people who used to come to my shows at Passim around New England is like so sweet and it means so much to me to see those mm. people who have supported me since those days when I was in college since I put out my first EP like even if I don't get to see you know like my buds in music up there like it's still just as valuable to go see those people who have like cheered for me for a long time you know mm-hmm. like been mm-hmm. in their in their like kind of reserved New England way <laughs> Right, right, like, right. So yeah, just so everybody's supportive. got their public radio tote bag. For real, everyone's They've just yeah, gone to the co-op and yeah, yeah, and they're like clapping gently, but then they'll go buy a CD, a hat, a T-shirt, and like <laughs> take videos and post them. It's like oh my god, like you. I just yeah, I yeah. love it. Yeah. Let's talk about this new record, uh, Whiplash. You made this album. <laughs> with producer Gar Raglan at his studio in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, It was during lockdown and you were able to take your time. And this is cool. You said, my producers really trusted me and let me lead in a way that I wasn't really expecting, which is cool because then you found out you had a really strong vision for like what you wanted the album to look like. What impact did that discovery have on your identity as a musician? Yeah, I think that I feel that I was just talking to my friend about this the other day, who is a producer and songwriter. I don't feel like I can fully be like the cap is upon my head that says producer. But I do think that that term is so confusingly ambiguous that like, yeah, I don't know when we were we were really like this album was very collaborative um, and you know, it happened over many, many months, which was both a challenge and, you know, actually quite a gift to like give, like I said, like give it the space and allow people to record remotely and bring in different elements that may have not been possible if we had to do the entire thing in person. Um, I feel like it really, yeah, the other co-producers on this project, Jesse, Tim and Isaiah Beard, I feel like all of, I mean, and, and Gar as well, like they, they really encouraged me. And I feel like I didn't understand that, like what part of what I was doing was producing necessarily like (laughs) that, you know, like (laughs) calling the shots and being like, no, we, you know, like, what if we had a, a violin part here that sounded like this or like, you know, what if, what if I think this part needs to have less reverb or this needs to, you know, like, and using, using the terms, but not having the ability to go do it. Like that's still having those ideas is still production. Even if you can't go on Ableton and like do this weird, crazy plugin, like Isaiah is like the master of that. And so that was like, you know, a really exciting you know, exciting collaborator to have on my project with me or like, I really want like this part would be so cool. And then like, Jesse would, you know, 
send me like a pass of here's what I'm thinking maybe for like a string part. And then like I get in there and be like, okay, maybe this needs to change or that needs to change. And then they can execute that. So it's, it's so complicated because even still my imposter syndrome is flaring up and I'm like, that doesn't make you a producer. But like, I feel like they, yeah, I feel like I'm still kind of like grappling with that because part of me Mm. always feels this like pressure that I need to like learn how to produce my own stuff, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. and be like self-sufficient. But I also like think that my favorite thing about music is collaboration and community based musical experiences, whether that be like jamming at a, you know, bluegrass jam or like working on a record with other people and not just alone in my room. Like that kind of sounds sad. <laughs> like I know that it's like, it's not for a lot of people and it's like a really cool feat and a really like beautiful, different way to make music. Um, like Caroline Rose just like produced and played on basically her entire whole own record basically all by herself and her record is amazing the most Mm -hmm. recent record she just put out the art of forgetting i mean it's a it's a masterpiece but i also am like i don't know if that is me so i think i'm still to answer your question and to not answer your question at all i think i'm still (laughs) grappling with the idea (laughs) of like maybe (laughs) i have these abilities uh and i just yeah once again a big shout out to gar jesse and isaiah for being like, no, believe in yourself and understand that you have good ideas. (laughs) Of these songs, I found this quote where you said, it's painful to change and move and grieve the loss of your childhood and the place you called home, but it's also an intrinsic part of being alive and growing up and becoming the person you're meant to be. What does growth and change look like for you now? Like, are you the person you're meant to be? Hmm. Damn. Another hard question. (laughs) I mean, I don't think anybody is, you know, like wakes up and is the person they're meant to be one day. Mm. Every day, I feel like you have to meet yourself every day and Mm -hmm. understand where you're at with certain things that look different one day and feel different another and do you do you do something where you like check in with yourself like a like a daily practice mm. where you kind of check it out <laughs> where you check it out uh yeah. i could do a more focused one uh i kind of it's something i feel like exists in my internal world and internal space of like mm-hmm understanding that like sometimes I am just spinning out like I'm thinking you're all we're always thinking all these millions of thoughts all the time Mm -hmm. and then feeling like potentially horrible because of the thoughts that we're thinking and like not understanding that we're carrying that around all the time so I feel like sometimes it's journaling or going on a walk or it's I don't have like a formal check-in process even though that is such a valuable thing and that is a thing that they have you do in all kinds of therapeutic spaces because it's therapeutic like and it's important to stay in touch with the internal world and like Hmm. sometimes I don't know sometimes reading is like a really good way for me to just get my like 
my body to just like chill out and enter more of a, and my mind to enter more of like a meditative space. And sometimes it requires like 30 minutes of me rereading the same sentence a million times because I'm thinking about how I need to go to the grocery store. But then eventually like clicking into that like more relaxed, uh, like less stressed out, you know, my nervous system is like chilling out space that Mm -hmm. I feel like reading actually has that effect because you're looking left to right and you're doing sort of this like almost hypnotic motion um and I feel like that kind of even though I'm not like you know intentionally checking in with whatever how I feel physically mentally spiritually all any of that I am like dropping into a more internal space and creating peace for myself which is pretty good too (laughs) even if I'm not like totally you know going in with a microscope and checking out what's going on in there or or, or probe ew not probe (laughs) (laughs) you know you know what i mean i oh yeah i'm very uh i've gotten really woo woo i don't know (laughs) no i like everything you're saying (laughs) i really believe it even though it's all a bit out there (laughs) no it's totally cool the universe is inside of us there we go we just need galaxies yeah, totally. Like if you look at the if you look at pictures of like NASA space pictures, it looks like yeah. the inside of a human body. It's uh it's, it's pretty freaky. It. Yeah, it's yep. pretty freaky. <laughs> <laughs> um to me, I feel like a centerpiece of the album is the song Sweet. It's about mm. taking up space and being yourself and You said the song nods to my queerness in the first few lines, which was a huge step for me when I wrote it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What's been your evolution of taking up space? Yeah, that's that's a hard that's a hard question because of, you know, also some of the things we're talking about in the very beginning. Um, I feel like when I wrote that song, I sort of wrote it as like a fake it till you make it situation of just sort of like, Mm. I am just going to put everything down that makes me squirm in my seat about myself. And one of those things at that time was being queer and also like specifically being attracted to people of all genders. And actually Mm. sometimes I still feel that way because there are a lot of queer spaces that it really feels like are really kind of more like, well, wait a minute. You're, you know, like there is sort of this, like, this is a space for people who are gay. And sometimes internally, I am still in my narrative of like, I'm not gay enough and I'm not straight enough. And I'm, Mm. you know, I'm, I, live in ambiguity and I live in fluidity and that's like what I'm also attracted to in other people. (laughs) Uh, and sometimes I still feel that like outsiderness, even in, you know, spaces where it, it literally could be just coming from me and the thoughts that are in my head as I'm like in the space. So I'm still like some days still really stepping into that. And then some days it feels just like not important to speak on, 
either, you know? Like, I don't want to just be a monolithic queer artist. Like, the whole thing with my art is that I am queer because, like, that is just a piece of who I am. And sometimes it can feel like it's too focused upon. And sometimes it feels like it wasn't focused upon enough for so long and I didn't speak on it. And so it's good to give some air and some space to that and and shed some light onto that part of who I am. But it's so hard. Mm -hmm. It's such a delicate balance, really. Um, And there's so many other things in the song, too, that I feel like lots of people, whether they are queer, straight, any, you know, anything like can identify with. I mean, I speak about like struggling with my body image who doesn't struggle with their body image. (laughs) Like in the second verse of the song, I speak about that. I speak about a lot of different things. Um, and I think maybe because like my queerness has been like maybe one of the harder things and one of the more complicated things to like own even still, like maybe that's why it feels like it's kind of been like yeah, one of the harder, harder things that, and, and also, and also body image stuff, like to accept Mm -hmm. fully, but, and just like to step into being like, this song is kind of like a, I don't give a fuck song. And like, I used to kind of have to like put that on. And now I kind of feel like, I don't know. I just, when I sing that song for live audiences, I just think of everybody out there who's felt like they need to shrink themselves and how much of a waste of time and life that is for everybody. Mm. And that, and I just try to stand in that and play that song for those people and for myself and the times that I felt like that. Damn. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Wild about this album, Whiplash, is that you wrote them when you were like, a teenager and like in your early twenties and you are already like working on a new album. Um, and I'm just like thinking, you know, I'm sympathetically thinking of you in like doing interviews like this or like going out and playing all the songs from whiplash. And, and it's not that they're, uh, it's not that you're like over these songs, but like, you're probably ready to like move on (laughs) at this point. (laughs) You know, um, so you are already working on a new album. So what lessons from Whiplash are you taking into this new one? I feel like lessons of like trusting myself is really big. Like mm-hmm. what we were speaking about earlier. Intuition. Like, yeah. Trusting my intuition and trusting my ears, too, because like ultimately I know the music better than anyone and I know there's actually things that I hear that I'm not realizing I'm hearing Mm -hmm. until we get into that, you know, studio space. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like, yeah, trusting my intuition is like a huge thing. And also trusting that like the thing that the reception to this album has been positive and a lot of what has been highlighted about it is the lyrics and the diversity of sound in it. And those are two things that I really have always prided myself on and also been a little bit worried that like, okay, maybe this song is too different than the last one in terms of like themes and also just like 
this song is jazzy and this song is country. Like, <laughs> maybe I'm mm-hmm. trying to go for something that's too big. But also, I feel like artists nowadays are able to do this thing that they've always wanted to do, which is just make the music they want to make, regardless of genre, because we're not existing in a space of like record labels needing you to be in one genre so that they can sell it to the radio and so that they know which shelf to put it on in the record store. Like it's not, we have terms like Americana. We have terms like, you know, we have Spotify playlists that are like coffee shop morning. Like what genre is coffee shop morning? It doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, And people are able to curate their music more and artists are able to make whatever music they want. Um, I actually, I got to see Lucinda Williams two nights ago, which was amazing. And she was, it was so crazy. And she was talking about how her record label or several record, not her record label, several record labels who had passed on her. It was because she was melding different genres together because she was a little bit blues, a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. And that's what makes her Lucinda Williams. Like all those Mm -hmm. beautiful elements together so it's and I I was sitting with my friend Max and we both kind of looked at each other because we had just had this conversation about like genre and feeling Mm -hmm. constrained by that and like it's like oh my gosh here's this legendary musician on stage at the Ryman like saying like those are the things that I love and those are the things that make me me and those were the things that had me be rejected by record labels and actually I think my record label, Yep Rock, was attracted to this record because there's other stuff going on than just a straightforward folk album or just a straightforward country album. Yeah. Um, and I think they really, like, they're they're into that stuff. They're into kind of funkier stuff, and you can see it in their roster, too. hmm Yeah. I'm really excited about um, songwriters of your generation, uh, and your Gen Z in general, I think like acceptance and fluidity are so positive and yeah. with that comes evolution and progress. I wish I were Gen Z. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. I, it's like it's... such a burden being uh, born in the early 80s. <laughs> you know, no one gets us. No one gets us. Yeah. No one gets <laughs> no one get, no one gets any generation, I swear. I just saw yeah. an article that was like the like the way that okay boomer can like damage the psychology of blah blah blah. And I was like, what the hell is My this? Gosh. Like you can let's Google all anything. take a breath and calm down <laughs> a little bit. It was it just kinda cracked me up. I was like, man, everybody, every generation is like, oh, so misunderstood and doesn't you know (laughs) nobody wants to really own their i don't know because every generation ends up being the embarrassing generation at some point looking forward to when that happens for gen z i know it's it's not it's about you know five to ten years from now i can feel it already (laughs) (laughs) all right joby you'll just be chilling (laughs) oh yeah i'll be on top of the i'll be on top of the world yeah looking down laughing (laughs) exactly Are you ready to do the lightning round? I'm ready. All right, Joe Bariccio. What is one song you wish you had written? Uh, Amelia by Joni Mitchell. Uh, 
<laughs> destroy me Lightning forever. round over. That was great. Okay, wait. <laughs> I have more. Okay. Ooh, great freaking question. Uh, probably gotta say a columbine because mm. that's the safe flower of Colorado. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really good. This is a tough one. Dogs or cats? Dogs. But I like cats. I'm like, if it was like an astrological thing, I would be like a dog sun and then like a cat moon. Cat moon rising. <laughs> like secretly, I really do enjoy cats, but the, but the cats that enjoy me, you know, but there is mm-hmm. a part of my, my secret self who likes cats, but I definitely like, you know, and more of a, present as more of a dog person. Anyways. <laughs> You're fluid. Yeah. About dogs yeah, and guys. Yeah. So Gen Z. Um, so okay. Gen Z. What is your karaoke song? Uh, You're No Good by oh, Linda right. Ronstadt. <laughs> Who is your favorite chick? Natalie Maines. That's a no brainer, huh? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Marty. <laughs> Love you too, though. Sorry, Emily. <laughs> what is your coffee order? Uh, a cortado with honey. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Or just a latte, um, you know. What kind of milk are we getting here? If I'm singing, oat milk. Or if I'm just feeling like I want a little nuttiness, oat milk. But I'll drink whole milk. Not to brag, but right. it doesn't do anything for my stomach, so I can drink it. <laughs> okay. All right. What is your favorite method of transportation? Train. Mm. <laughs> I miss trains. Okay, this is the last one. Where is the most beautiful place in the world? Oh, oh God. The San Juan Mountains in Colorado. I'm sorry, everyone. Mm. I am that person from Colorado. I'm so sorry. But that's my <laughs> That's what I think. Oh, <laughs> uh, great. Well, thank you very much for coming on Basic Folk. It was such a blast talking to you yes thank you so much for having me these were absolutely wonderful questions This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Our music composed by Alex Stanton. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network, and you can find all of our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. You can also search for us on the SiriusXM app or check out our website, basicfolk.com. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? Like maybe your friend in high school who you sat next to all throughout high school band because you both played clarinet together And you were also both first chair together, even though you were a senior and she was a junior. She was actually like, she actually was a much better clarinet player than you were, uh, but she was always really nice. So that would be kind of awesome if you sent it to her. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. You are indeed so special. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.